As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Peter Coleman. Peter, I guess Dr. Peter Coleman, I should call it. Do you like when people call you doctor? No. You don't care, right? Um, <laughs> professor of Columbia. This is the same reason he doesn't care is the same reason I wanted him to come on, which is like, he seems like a pretty cool guy. So, you know, Professor of Columbia runs something called the Difficult Conversations Lab, but effectively, he, he is one of the world's renowned experts in conflict and conflict resolution, how it all works. And given that we live in a world that feels so conflict-ridden right now, seem like uh, having a mom would be a good idea. So Peter, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, beautiful space, nice day. Thanks for having oh, me In down. fact, I'm supposed to do this every podcast, and I always forget. We are recording from P&T Knitwear yeah. uh, on an orchard trip between Houston and Stanton. Please come here and buy some books or record a podcast or whatever. But thank you, I, I get yelled at all the time for forgetting to do that. Um, so. You're, you understand conflict really well. It, it, it's, it's based on my life, at least. It's ever-present, right? It's part of everyone's life all the time. Is there a significant difference in the nature of it between two countries, two siblings, two cartels? Um, and like, what's the, is there a worst and best, or is it totally variable? Yeah, so um, my mentor, a guy named Mort Deutsch, liked to say that conflict is like sex. It's a fundamental part of life. It can go really bad. It can go. It can be fantastic. You can grow. So it's a natural, pervasive phenomenon. And uh, there are aspects of conflict that scale. So there are things within me when I'm, you know, conflicted about decisions between me and my spouse or my siblings, particularly. Um, that scale all the way up to the international realm. So there's some things that you can understand that are, you know, at all levels. But, you know, the, the higher you get, the more complicated you get. Intergroup, intragroup stuff happens within the left and the right, and that affects what happens between them. So things get complicated uh, the larger the scope of the conflict and the, the people involved. And so in terms of resolute, but it would seem to me that you could have like two siblings or whatever it is just hate each other and be estranged for life. Whereas ultimately, if it's a work thing, eventually, in theory, there should be some sort of resolution, right? Well, in theory, but that's not usually the case. <laughs> it, works, yeah, yeah, it depends. You know, again, it depends. I mean, even if siblings or families have, sometimes have to live together, right? Yeah. Physically stuck. It's kind of like Israel-Palestine. They right. have to live next door to each other. So, you know, that when, when it's a situation like that, you'd think people would be more motivated to resolve conflicts, but it's not always true, right? So, so that leads us into the Difficult Conversations Lab. Yeah. What do you, I mean, what do you guys do and how did you like convince them to let you do this? <laughs> That's a good question, yeah. So most conflict research is, you know, surveys of people or field studies or, you know, case studies after things have happened. We were interested in creating a lab where we could actually study difficult conversations over moral issues, you know, differences over moral issues. Um, and really try to understand when they go well and when they go poorly. Um, we did it because, so we, st we study a thing called, I study a thing called intractable conflict, which mm -hmm. are long-term difficult stuck conflicts, which happen between siblings and their yep. families, but also happen in the international domain. Um, and we had gotten some funding at some point to bring in this crazy group of eclectic, brilliant people, physicists, political scientists, anthropologists from different disciplines, to just think about this creatively. So we had some, you know, harebrained ideas about how to think about stuck conflicts differently as complex systems that settle into patterns that resist change. We were doing mathematical modeling and all this stuff, but we needed data. We needed like, to be able to sort of start to test our assumptions. Yeah. So we built a lab, we call it a capture lab, 
And it's a space that's wired so that you can track people's emotional dynamics over time in the context of a conflict. You can look at their facial expressions, so physiological measures. Um, but then you can also, you know, start to track and and measure how they think, what they say. Is it more nuanced and complicated? So when you have all of that data, yeah. what do you learn that you can't learn in, in, in just trying to do it anecdotally? You learn about, what we, you know, what we would call the dynamics of conflict. So, again, conflict is a movable thing, right? Yep. You you may say something that insults me and I take umbrage and say and, re, and react and escalate it a bit and then you make a joke and it breaks down, right? Right. So it, it has a, a life of its own. Yeah. and it can move and usually we we don't understand that because we'll you know in most studies you bring people in you say how do you feel about th this issue on the other side you have them have a conversation and then afterwards you say did that change so you miss all of the action which is in the middle where when people are feeling different things so we're able to capture that and understand those dynamics better and when those dynamics go well lead to better conversations, learning, right. connections, and when they don't. So when you have to have a difficult conversation with someone, let's say you have to fire an employee or whatever yeah. it is, what have you learned from this that, that helps those conversations go better? Well, so A, it's emotional conflicts. You know, most of our models are cognitive. How do you think about it? How do yeah. you frame conflicts? But uh, they tend to trigger in us emotions, sometimes really deep emotions. They, that can derail us. Mm -hmm. So being mind, just simply mindful of that, particularly now, people are a mess, right? Yeah. All the indices around anxiety and suicidal ideation and depression are you know, scaling and high, particularly for younger people. So a lot of our students are really reacting to these times. Yeah. Um, so being mind, understanding that that's the context helps. But, a, but simply what you want to do particularly on difficult moral issues, is complicate them. Because what tends to happen in the you know, societal discourse about, say, immigration, is we boil it down to, should we build a wall or not build a wall? Well, that's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> because you know, this is an immensely complex political, legal, right. you know, historical, economic, political yeah. set of issues. Racial, so all of that stuff is, in, is, is at play here, and to simplify it as one simple, you know, simplistic policy decision misses the point. So what we found, so in our studies, we uh, would bring pe people and talk about abortion, for example. And typically when you have people, for example, on television, experts talking about pro-life, pro-choice, there are two sides, right? One has their talking points and they make their case, the other has their own. In our lab, if we give people just the two sides of an issue like abortion, then they just pay attention to one side, right? don't really process the other side, and they come in loaded for a fight. If you say to them, this is a complicated set of issues, there's you know, medical issues, there's religious, you know, family yeah. secrets, you know, shame, all of these things are involved, um, you give them the same information, give them the same content, but you say, it's complicated. There are different things going on here. Simply reframing it like that opens people up to that right. fact and it, changes the conversation. It feels like they now have permission to sort of, they don't have to worry about looking dumb or anything else because now you've opened it up and it's like, look, no one really knows the answer to this thing. Yeah. Here are the factors. Um, yeah, and I, I can imagine how that just disarms yeah. people. When does life ways. begin? We don't know. Right? There's, science doesn't know. You know? Right. So, it, so whatever decision we make is an arbitrary decision, and acknowledging that is a beginning. It's an opening. 
So you guys must have plenty of demographic data. Um, are men more conflict-friendly than women, or is that just a stereotype? Oh, conflict-friendly? Yeah. Other <laughs> way around, more conflict-diverse? Well, men I mean, it are, seems like men are the ones that are waging wars and things like that, right? Men are waging wars. They're more attracted to conflict. Yeah, they're, 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 they definitely get into conflict more. Their orientations tend to be a little different. But, you know, gender, too, is a weird thing, right? It's a, it's right. a complicated thing, and so... The, the data and the evidence on gender differences and conflict resolution is all over the map. So generally speaking, women tend to be a little more communal and a little more oriented to the other than men, but that's, that doesn't always bear out. Got it. It's like, what, what are age? Like, I know there's a stereotype of kind of the grumpy old man, but I find that as I've gotten older, yeah. I actually am less judgmental, and it's just more like, you know what, conflict just makes my life harder and worse. I don't, I don't need to have more of it than I absolutely have to, yeah. um, and it's much more of a live and let live. Is that a normal progression, or is it, again, just all over the place? It's a bit all over the place. There, it does tend to be that people who have certain experiences, let's say, that are afforded certain experiences in their life that are more eclectic, they travel, they meet different kinds of people, they tend to relax more, think in more nuanced ways about the world and about other people. Um, you know, if you're stuck in a, in, a, in a tough job and you're irritated and you're frustrated most of your life, it's not going to necessarily breed an openness, right, right. to difference. So it, it depends. Yeah, it depends on the yeah. life that you led. Yeah. Um, in terms of conflict resolution, what do you look for? And, and if you had to hire someone to deal with a, a UN issue compared to a, a SWAT team, compared to someone trying to sell a used car, is it all effectively the same skill set, or, or do they differ based on context? Definitely differs. Um, you know, obviously, experience in the context is critical, right? So I would never work in an international conflict zone without local people and experts that know the case, know the history, know the politics, because I can come in with some ideas and do great harm because I have no right. you know, recognition of what's happened, what's come yeah, before. Sure. So expertise in their space is good. But yeah, there are some common things. I mean, the capacity to be able to tolerate ambiguity, right? Be able to not have to get rushed to an answer, but yeah. to say, yeah, well, this is a complicated thing. We don't really know, right? Right, right. Yeah, so that it's, helps. It's, it's funny. My kids go to a Quaker school, yeah. and I have always thought that even though they don't like having to sit in silence, I'm like, this is going to make you guys better negotiators. Because I'm, I'm not comfortable with silence. Most people are not. But if you can just, no problem, just sit there, it's, yeah. it's got to be an advantage, right? It's a tremendous training. It really is. It, it, it's one of the few spaces where people actually just sit and wait to have an idea and then listen to each other, right? right. That happens in AA and Quaker meetings and that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> you know? yeah. Certainly not on the internet. Not on the internet. So in the world of intractable problems, What's the problem that has been the most intractable that you've dealt with, and what's sort of been one that you thought was going to be really hard, and then you managed actually to resolve it quicker than you thought expected? Uh, I don't think there's any of the latter. Okay. But, uh, but uh, so we, you know, again, I work with others in a variety yeah. of different conflicts, right. um, and some that seem to be more intractable are, you know, a combination of Israel-Palestine. Right. Done a lot of work there. Um, and trying to understand how to think about that differently and play with it differently and try to, you know, see opportunities in different places. The race relations in this country is yep. a, has a you know, long legacy yeah. and change is very slow, hard won. There are setbacks all the time. So I view that sometimes as more intractable, particularly on, at the extremes. Um, and then political polarization in this country is a, you know, it's it, the, the current trends that we're on started somewhere in the 1970s, depending on what you're measuring, 
uh, and continue to get worse. And so that is a multi-decade runaway train that we would consider intractable. And let me just define intractable. Yeah. It just means that they're long-term, they're, they tend to be highly destructive, and they resist change. Right. Good faith attempts to talk them out don't help. Yeah. As, as someone who spent a lot of my career in politics, my thesis, which may be wrong, is most Americans agree on the general outline of how most issues should be solved. So, yeah. for example, guns. Yes. Most people would say you should not go into someone's house and confiscate what's in there, but you also shouldn't let them walk into a store and walk out with an AK-47. Yeah. Immigration. Everyone just can't come in willy-nilly, but at the same time, we're not going to deport people who are already here and obeying the law. But because we live in a world where every election is gerrymandered, and as a result, only the primaries matter, and because primary turnout is low and highly ideological, the 15% that say, yes, we should confiscate every gun, or no, everyone should have an assault weapon, give it to them upon birth, they're the only ones who actually matter because they're the ones who participate in the process. And so I actually think, weirdly, we're less... There's less division than we realize, but because we only empower the people who um, want to sow... And by the way, just generally don't want... They want moral purity, right? Um, They don't want resolution. Or they want power. They're weaponizing these issues because it it helps... You know, they know their base will respond. So they don't really have a, a skin in the game on the issue... They really, but they they know their constituency does, and so they play to them. Let's say we had a country with a multi-party system instead, though. Yeah. So, you know, the, the socialists break off from the Democrats, the Trumpers, and however you want to define it, break off from the Republicans. Yeah. So now you have this, what's seen as the extreme parties and kind of, and so one, it would give Democrats and Republicans much more permission to work together because the crazies are not, now not voting in their primary anymore. Would the public kind of think about it differently and say, okay, um, there are these extremes, we can kind of filter them out and ignore them most of the time, and then kind of get back to a world of more consensus? Yeah, so again, the, the problem is there are no magical, magic solutions. Yeah. So, but, but let's just start with ranked choice voting, Sure. right? That seems to be a better thing. The evidence suggests yeah. that if you have you know, three or four candidates and you don't just have to force to choose between two but rank them, it changes the dynamics. Yeah, we of the had that for the mayor's election here, and I, th- I thought it got to us to a better outcome than we might have otherwise had. You had candidates that were collaborating with each other. You had less vitriol, less yep. attack. So that helps the, the, the climate around elections. And that is just introducing more nuance, right? Mm-hmm. When countries right, right. like Kenya are forced in election cycles to choose between two candidates yeah. and there's tribal associations like in America, then everything becomes weaponized and right. simplified. Totally. I yeah. was in Kenya this summer and we were traveling around the, the country. Yeah. And so I made a point of asking, I probably made everyone uncomfortable, but I made a point of asking <laughs> people at each camp, like, because yeah. the election was like happening the next week, like, who are you yeah. voting for? How's, and it was... Interesting. It was completely binary yep. and geographic and like, you know, yep. I don't obviously understand the nuance of Kenyan politics at yep. all, yep. but it was exactly what, what you just said. Yeah. I mean, they have a long, you know, the, the colonialist powers divided and conquered them and that's still alive and well in Kenya in terms of, you know, yep. tr- tribal and ethnic rivalries. And, and, the, and the elections, because they're forced to make a dichotomous decision, play into those power dynamics. Right. That happens here, too. So again, issues that people agree on. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the major findings. There's a group called More in Common that studies our perceptions. And what they find is that, you know, my perception on the left is much, the, of the right is much more extreme than they actually are. Right. I believe that they act in more extreme ways, hold more extreme opinions, whatever. And so what that does is it elicits, elicits in me more extreme attitudes and right. reactions to them. 
So there's a self-fulfilling prophecy that right. happens here. And, and made even worse by the fact that what seems to be the only business model in media that really makes a lot of money is extremism, right? So whether it's Fox News on the right or the New York Times on the left at this point, they have figured out that if yep. they can just appeal to a very disgruntled audience and say, you're getting screwed over and we're going to make the people doing it to you look really bad every day, yep. that sells really well. But of course, it only exacerbates the problem. It's not just media. It's true that the, the business model of media is about contention and competitiveness, yep. getting two sides of an issue, oversimplifying an issue and getting yep. people to scream at each other. And that's what gets attention. Social media is built on this right, as well, yeah. right? So <laughs> right. it's pretty I much scratch the most of yeah, the ways totally. that we communicate all the time. I was in a, a pop-up meeting about polarization on the internet with some of the kind of big wigs, including one of the founders of Facebook. And they said, what kind of dialogue should we be having online in order to have a healthy virtual society? And I said, well, what do you mean by dialogue? Silence. And I said, you mean debate, right? You mean to debate. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, that's right. And I said, well, dialogue's different. Dialogue is like in a Quaker meeting where right. you sit and listen and discover new ideas and new feelings in yourself and the other. I said, you know, that's what dialogue is. And then this, you know, co-founder of Facebook said, oh, well, then there's no place on the internet where that happens, right, you know? Right. So, and, th so, and that's yeah. the business model. Right. Because what does what gets attention is con contention. Are you familiar with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act? So it's, it's, the, it's the provision that makes the platforms um, exempt from any liability for the content posted by the users. Yeah. There's been a big movement on both sides of the aisle. In fact, it was the, like, the one issue that Trump and Biden's platform was the same, like, same language on was, uh -huh. you know, rescind Section 230. Yeah. If that happened and if the companies had to start being legally responsible, not only like the tobacco companies when they started getting sued, yeah. how much do you think that changes the nature of this? I think it changes the nature of social media, and social media had, was a tipping point. The, the, my colleague John Hyde is writing a book yeah. about 2010 when the like button came on Facebook. And so Facebook was not just me sharing pictures of my life, but my community responding. And so this, the whole dynamic changed. And so the levels of addiction are up, and that increases anxiety and loneliness and all of that stuff. So having guardrails on social media would be a really important step, but it's not going to solve the political problem that we're in. Right. I mean, that's been an accelerant, right? right. That space it could, I guess, help lower the temperature a little bit. It could definitely constrain the spaces where people can just simply attack and lie. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I have a crazy theory that I've always had, or at least about Israel-Palestine, since you brought it up. I figured yeah. I'll run it by you, and Hugo's going to think this Great. is Great. I think but, that crazy theories are what we need there. So we have this intractable problem, yeah. and, and because it is so based on thousands of years and religion and the emotions run so deep, it doesn't really, I mean, you can sort of maybe in the middle solve it a little bit, but it doesn't feel like it can ever really be solved. Let's say in 1948, if, if the UN said, okay, you can have Israel, mm -hmm. but you're always going to have this conflict, right? Mm -hmm. The neighbors are always going to hate you. Yes, you will be in your holy land and the Western Wall and everything else. Yeah. Or you can have this beautiful Pacific island. Nobody's going to bother you. You're free to build and run your country as you see fit. Um, what would have been the better choice? Well, I think that they somewhere knew that, right? I don't think the Israelis right, right. felt like this was going to be... I mean, you know, it was a promised land. It was a place that they could call their own and protect themselves. And yeah. that's what... But, but that could happen on a Pacific Island, too. It could happen in Pacific Island. Absolutely. That's true. Um, you may have the same issues. You may have indigenous people on a Pacific Island, right? right? So <laughs> who may take umbrage with it being taken yeah, over. Yeah, but uh, So I think those issues would be anywhere. 
Um, but but let me just say, I, I don't. Um, that's why I think we want to define intractable because I yeah. don't think that uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is hopeless. It's a long-term conflict, depending on how you define it. Some would say 100 years, some would say more or less. Um, but what, when you study intractable conflicts, these are conflicts that last too long, yeah. on average 40 years, some 100, wow. some yeah. le- right? And they exist in the international realm as well as everywhere else. But we have the best data on them in the international space. And the conditions that lead to dramatic changes and ends to those conflicts are major political shocks, that have a nonlinear effect. So something happens, like 9-11 happens, and the American incursions in Iraq and Afghanistan happen, and that destabilizes things in a region to some degree where 10 years later, you see the Arab Spring and these uprisings and a lot of dramatic change. Well, in the research over a 200-year period of these kinds of conflicts that got stuck for decades, 95 to 97% of them end within 10 years of some major destabilizing force. So that means that the war in Syria, for example, could be an opportunity for Israelis and Palestinians to really start to reassess their basic assumptions about how they live and how they protect themselves. Yeah, I mean, do you think the Abraham Accords (laughs) sort of push towards that? Is that a a, a favorable sign or is it just good PR? I think these are, this is progress, but I think in a place like Israel-Palestine, as you say, that it's been so long and people are socialized into that conflict, it's not just an agreement that's necessary, it's, it's cultural change. And so there has to be a socialization into that idea. And there are folks working on that. There are smart people that are working in schools with young people. How is history taught? Yep. You know, is yep. it just one-sided? Or is it, you know, how, how do you start to mitigate the, the effects of education on the long term yeah. to create a different kind of society that will be open to different I, kinds I, of politics? So my son, who's in eighth grade right now, would talk to him what he's studying in, in social studies, history, whatever it is. And it is a much more... Um, diverse perspective on a lot of different things that happen. And part yeah. of me is like, well, do you ever learn about like the presidents? But then yeah. also I'm like, oh, well, you'll be able to now see things from multiple perspectives, and yeah. that's actually much more valuable than reciting a bunch of facts. They're both true. I mean, again, there are, there are facts that are useful to know, but the, the way I was taught, we were probably taught yeah. history, yeah. the way I was taught yeah, history sure. was all dead white men and yep. their power, and and this is a different story, and it's being challenged, and it's more accurate, and you know that can't be a bad thing ultimately. Right. What do you do with someone who proactively uses conflict as a weapon? And obviously the guy that I think just came to mind for everyone would be Donald Trump. Is he just an anomaly or is that like an actual strategy people use? It is a strategy that some people use. He's an outlier, right? right? I mean, I don't don't know. I mean, Trump is is both, uh, you know, a conflict entrepreneur and his own worst enemy, right? Because of his, I would say, narcissistic tendencies. He says and does things that even he probably wishes ultimately he didn't, right? <laughs> yeah. But there are people that use conflict. I have a, I have a peacemaker colleague, a man named Andrea Bartoli. He's from, a, from Rome, connected to the Vatican, does peace building work all over the place in international deadly conflicts, the worst places you can imagine. He's worked a lot in South Sudan right now. He's one of the, he t- the way he teaches is through provocation. He throws down a provocative statement and says, what do you think? So he, he uses, right. you know, he's Actually, a... He sounds he's like a, law school. Yeah. yeah, it's a little bit like law <laughs> yeah. school, but it, but it, yeah, so that's kind of his pedagogy, and he uses that oftentimes in mediations where he'll challenge people. And it's effective. He's, and it's effective. It's effective for him. He's, he's, a, he's a master at it. So he's lovely, deeply spiritual, very, you know, decent and compassionate and emotional, 
and provocative. So right. some people can do so, it well. So should some of the listeners, if they're thinking, okay, I check most of the boxes that, that Peter just said, yeah. how do I develop uh, the skill of using conflict proactively? Like, how do they even go about that? Well, well, you can read some of our books, there right? I have one called. We're about to talk about your book in a second. <laughs> well, I have so one called lead in. "Making Conflict Work," and it just yeah. says conflict is in life, and it brings energy and attention, and so, and sometimes it goes really well, and it connects people, and it, and they learn about each other and become more intimate, more yeah. intelligent, or it alienates and derails and distracts and goes terrible. So, how do you do that? And that's what our center has done. We have the Science Practice Center at Columbia, the Morton Deutsch Center. And for decades, we studied, you know, the conditions where conflicts go well and when they go poorly. And a lot of that has to do with how you approach it, right? How, how you think about conflict, how you feel when you're in conflict. Do you just get triggered and shut down and angry? Um, and ultimately, the strategies you, you use to connect people. So, you know, in Andrea's case, you know, again, he works in the most dangerous situations I've ever heard of. You have to do that very carefully, take a lot of time in those places, know what you're doing, you know. I don't recommend on the subway that if you see a violent encounter, you step in between and say, hey, can we talk about that? I don't recommend that. Yeah, right? you know, it's funny. I literally told my son that yesterday. We, were, we read the New York Post every morning. There was an article about a, a knife, and I said, get off the train, call yeah. 911, try to help, but yeah. do not jump into the middle of do, it. Yeah, you, there, that's not, you know, that, that's that's emergency response. Yeah. That's not peace right. building. And, right. and you know, we're, most of us are not equipped to that. Look, if you're if you're a, a ranger, an army ranger or a marine, and you're trained to yeah. disarm somebody, great. You know, do what you do. <laughs> you know, right. most of us are That's aren't. like not, yeah. yeah. So good segue to your books. Your next book's called Unhero, Counterintuitive Guide to Effective Leadership. So... What's on here? Yeah, so that's not my next book. It's but not? The, that's probably Hugo. old. old <laughs> it was on his website. Uh, <laughs> Hugo, come on, dude. Oh, man. The problem is which website? There's like 12 of them, right? I, I will say that's exactly right. You have like three or four Columbia websites. And I was like, wait, is this a different guy? <laughs> yeah. That's true. And very different pictures. One's from 25 years ago, yeah. No. So uh, what is the next book? <laughs> well, so I, I published a book uh, a year ago called The Way Out, which okay. is about political polarization in America, and it's applying the insights that we've gleaned from the Difficult Conversations Lab, but also other people's work, to America. And it says this is not a simple problem, right? This is not like a, there's not a simple fix to our problem. It's not just gerrymandering or elections or whatever. It's a constellation of things because it's become so cultural, right? It's become tribal and cultural. So all of those issues that, as you pointed out, we agree about, we don't, it doesn't matter, right? It's, uh, this is tribal. This is yeah. our side. Our side has this issue. Yeah. I don't care if we agree. Right. It's more important that we support our, our team, yeah. right? right? So this book, The Way Out, it's called The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization, which yeah. is what a state that we're in, mm -hmm. which means... You know, people like John Meacham are drawing parallels to today in, in the U.S. to the 1850s, just before the U.S. Civil War, because there's a you know there are often contested elections. There's massive disinformation processes. There's distrust in the government. The conditions are ripe, and we're a country with more than 400 million guns, and that's what we know of, right? Right. Heavily armed country. Um, so the the cocktail is a, is a terrifying one. So we're and we're stuck in these dynamics. As I said, the the, the assessments and the measures tell us that this has been happening since the mid 1970s, and we just get further and further apart. Now, the recent election was a promising yeah. one. Yeah, I thought so too. Right, yeah. um, and so I think promising things happened. 
the stakes are higher in the in the next election. The candidates will be more vitriolic, and yep. so you know we'll see if we can continue to hold. And do you think that because of the nature of Trump? If he yeah. loses the Republican nomination, it seems like he wouldn't be capable of not saying it was stolen from him, which then I think kind of really screws over whoever does win the nomination, because if 15 percent of Trump supporters stay home, yeah. given how close everything is, that's the math. That's yeah. the election. Well, Trump, I mean, again, to go back to my earlier point about political shocks, Donald Trump and his administration and his approach to leadership and governing is a major political shock. He has challenged all of the norms and institutions of this country. Right. And ultimately, that can be a good thing. That kind of... It, well, they held up, right? It's funny. Did you see what happened in Peru yesterday? Yeah. Right. So just for the listeners, so there was the, the a leftist populist uh, president, prime minister, yeah. whatever it was called, yeah. basically declared martial law, dissolved the parliament, you know, suspended the constitution. And what was great was um, the military, rather than just stepping in to enforce all of that, they and the other civic leaders said, this is not acceptable. They arrested the president. Yeah. The vice president, as supposed to happen, took office, and it's, the system seems like it kind of worked. Yeah, and the president, uh, the president did that because there was a, uh, an impeachment hearing that right. was being proposed by Congress, so he went in to shut that down. So there was context, and yep. the military fortunately sided with that. That's important. I mean, look what happened in Germany yesterday. You had this coup attempt in Germany, yep. right, yep. that they sort of uncovered. And what's been happening in Germany more and more, there's been a lot of reporting on this, is infiltration into the military and into the police with extreme right-wing yep. you know, members. And, and that's a terrifying thing, because when you get a critical mass in the military or in police, then you can tip more, much more easily into a war-like scenario or a coup attempt. Right. Right? So yeah, I think you're right. I think Donald Trump, if he doesn't um, get the nomination from the Republicans, will contest it. He's going to go out screaming. To try to do a third party bid. Could try to do a third party bid. But again, what that does to the political system could be interesting. I mean, it right. could be, you well, it's, know. It's funny. So, so there's yeah. the, the forward party, which is this sort of very fledgling attempt to create a new political party. I, yeah. I've been in, involved with it because I, I do a lot of political reform stuff. Yeah. And they're trying to get the ballot line in all 50 states. And I was kind of thinking like, should you? I mean, the whole point that what they're trying to do is to get another Republican on the line. If Trump is the nominee to split the vote in yeah. the other direction, yeah, yeah, yeah. what if you gave him the line? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So yeah, DeSantis sure. is the nominee. You're like, here you go, man. Yeah. We, <laughs> take we, this one. We yeah. did take this one. We <laughs> yeah. did all the work. I guess right. you, you've run some risk that somehow he wins out of all of that. But yeah. better shot that he uh, that he loses. I mean, it was the yeah. same thing when I was when Mike Bloomberg thought about running for mayor, for president in 2016. Yeah. I kind of put. I had been his campaign manager running for mayor, so I, I put oh. together the the campaign for him. And the strategy was to run as a third party. And ultimately, the reason Mike didn't do it was because he was afraid that he would somehow inadvertently elect Trump because sure. the assumption was Hillary would win. Yeah. And, you know, while he would rather be president than Hillary, he was he and Hillary had a good relationship. He was fine with that. Yeah. Um, turns out we might have been the only thing that could have prevented it. Uh, yeah. So you don't really necessarily know. You don't know. That's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah. So again, I mean, that's the problem with, you know, disturbing events like this, shocking events like this, is they, they can destabilize and they can end up in positive ways. You know, I was citing that 95% of these long-term conflicts end within 10 years of political shocks. Well, about the same number start within 10 years of major political shocks. So there can be some major change that happens and it leads to the Syrian war, Right. So you don't know how ruptures like this are going to settle and have an effect. 
We can't predict those things. What you can do, though, mm -hmm. is know that the likelihood of major change is happening and do everything you can to prepare the ground for constructive change, for positive yeah. change. Yeah. All right, two final questions, neither yeah. of them about conflict. Uh, well, okay. One sort of. Um, you started your career as an actor. Yeah. So what made you switch to this? I just and want you to know you... I got that one right. Okay, Brad. Yeah. Well, well done. Well done. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Wikipedia for once. This um, and then so how do you go from being an actor? How did it go as an actor? Like, yeah. did you get parts? Yeah. Uh, okay. So yeah. then what made you decide to go from succeeding in a really hard job the yeah, industry yeah, yeah. to this well it was nonlinear, but i so i moved to new york to be an actor i was lucky i went to the american academy of dramatic arts here and then was quote discovered by abc and so i went on one life to live which was a soap opera yeah, at the sure. time and i did that for a while and then i did other soap operas so i was doing the kind of tv soap opera commercial Does thing it pay well yeah, paid all well, for me. Yeah. I had no money, right? right? I think I came to New York with sixteen hundred dollars in my sock. You know, yeah. so so yeah, it, it paid very well. Um, but you know, it's a hard life, and it's very unpredictable. And you know, the friends I had that were older actors were in their seventies, still lining up with everybody that looked like them to get the job. And so it was a very unpredictable and in some yeah. ways unstable life. I had a break went to Florida and taught acting down there. And when I was down there, a colleague of mine was working in a psychiatric hospital with, mm -hmm. with youth and, and a lot of violent yep. youth. Yep. I did that for a while there. I moved to New York. I started to work with violent kids in New York City. Most, m many of them had, had been addicted, uh, had been committed crimes, violent crimes, and were trying to reduce their sentences. So they were in these inpatient hospitals. And you know, it felt profoundly meaningful to do that work. I had no idea what I was doing. I had some instinct for how to build relationships with them so that when they would escalate, they wouldn't kill me. Right? Okay. Yeah. But I didn't really know what I was doing, but it felt significant, right? It felt important and meaningful in a way that my acting opportunities never really felt. And so I started to read about it and found this guy, Morton Deutsch at Columbia, who was this brilliant theorist, and I thought, you know, I should go I should meet do that. this guy, and that's where I, how I... Sounds like it worked out pretty good. Yeah. Um, all right, last question. Favorite hostage movie? Oh, hostage movie. God. Or any sort of conflict movie, if you want. You can broaden the category. Well, that's a... T well, okay, um, I'm going to give you a, a one sort of strange one, which is The Battle of Algiers. Okay. <laughs> okay, I get a thumbs Hugo's up. Getting a thumbs up. That's my favorite all-time movie. I'd say that really? movie is incredible. The more obscure, the more likely Hugo is to know. <laughs> it's not that obscure, actually. I mean, it, it was... But you, even you would enjoy it, Brad. Right, it's right. a fascinating movie, and the story of the making of the film is fascinating because some it's about the Algerian resistance movement against French colonialist mm -hmm. powers at the, yep. uh, and the and independence movement that eventually came. Some of the actors in it were actually the actor, the the activists that were involved in oh, the wow. movement, yeah. and that movie is used by the French government and the U.S. government to study how not to respond to insurgent movements. Because it. it was like they such get, a they bad, got everything wrong. They got everything wrong, and so they used that as you a teaching tool. See how the French vehicle. would do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, so I love that. But I, I, you know, one of the assignments in my classes is I, I list about twenty films, and I say apply a theory to one of these. So what, yeah. What's your favorite of those, other than the better films? That's a really hard question because I love so many of them. Uh, Moonlight's part of them. Moonlight is, I think, a really interesting. Yep. Sound of Metal is another one, which mm -hmm. is more internal conflict, but you know, kind yeah. of fascinating. Yeah. Um, so there, I don't know. There are oh, I, uh, probably my favorite of them is uh, Citizen Four. I don't know that one either. Laura Poitras, 
uh, and it's her um, interview, her videotaped interview with Edward Snowden in Hong Kong, in the hotel, with Glenn Greenwald, the other journalist. As soon as Snowden got out, he called these two journalists and he said, um, could you meet me? I have something I want to share with you. And so they meet in a hotel, and that's the film. It won an Academy Award for Best wow. Documentary it's that year. It's just their discussion. It's their time like a together. Podcast. And it's what it's fascinating is that it is like a thriller because, you know, the the NSA is hunting him and the phone rings at some point in the hotel and they all panic because nobody knows they're there. Right. Know? So right. it has this, watch out this has this great tension, but it's also really revealing about him and his patriotism and you know the whole story. That is a fascinating All right, film. that's a good yeah. way to close. Yeah. All right, so given that you have four or five websites, what's the best way for people <laughs> to follow you and learn more? So Twitter, I'm on Twitter, which is, I think I'm, uh, I don't know, Peter Coleman, Peter Coleman one. not there. Twitter or something, I don't know, something like that. If you look on Twitter, you and search it, me. And what, what would the right Columbia site to go to? Um, so go to my center. So I, I direct this thing called the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution, M-D-I-C-C-C-R. If you go there, there's a bunch, there's too much information. Most of it's accurate. Right. <laughs> my yeah, apology, Hugo. Got it. Right. Peter Coleman, thanks for joining us. Oh, so fun. Thanks. <laughs>